You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Well, good morning again, everyone, and welcome back for what is going to be the last week of our sermon series that we have been in ever since the beginning of Lent, a sermon series entitled Good News for Bad Christians. Good news for naughty Christians. Uh, If you're joining us for the very first time uh, here today, we've been preparing for Easter. We've been preparing uh, these six weeks leading up to Easter. We've been preparing for Easter uh, by celebrating the really, really good news that when we struggle to be the types of Christians that we want to be, uh, when we don't always embody the type of faith that we want to practice, God's reaction to that isn't to quit on us, to give up on us, to cancel us out, write us off, but it's to run after us. God is always devising creative ways and creative strategies for getting our attention and winning us back so we can return to him. And so, We've delved into a whole bunch of different examples of poor or bad Christian behavior that you can, if you're uh, just joining us for the very first time today or you're joining online, uh, you can find those on our YouTube channel or you can find them on the podcast. But today what I want to do is I want to talk about one more. One more. One more that we have not discussed up until this point. One that actually it's very, very appropriate and timely that we address on Palm Passion Sunday. If you're new to church or new to a church that sort of celebrates the beginning of Holy Week, what Palm Passion Sunday is, it's recalling the story that in literally a one-week span, Jesus' friends, his followers, all the people who are all about his movement and his message and his kingdom, went in one week from being adorers of him, praisers of him, backing his cause in his corner, to abandoning him, forsaking him, pretending they never even knew the dude. In just a one-week span, these disciples went from role models of the faith to failures, doing good to doing wrong, rising to falling. And so today, that's exactly the topic that I want to take up here this morning. Today, I want to talk about, I want to seek to answer the question of, When, where, and how does God run after us after we commit what we might call a moral failure? When we do something that is completely counter to our character, it's completely counter to the type of person we want to be, the person we've always preached about being, how does God reach us when we fall and succumb to temptation and we become captive to the moment and we wander off from being the people that God is calling us to be? Now, here at the onset, I just want to be uh, super clear about something. Um, even to address the topic of morality today is super, super challenging because of how ambiguous the term has become, right? How gray it's become. You can't even have a conversation on defining morality without sitting down with people who uh, disagree uh, and have very, very loose definitions as to what is right and what is wrong. Some people you run into, they have very rigid, very legalistic, very black and white understandings of morality. What is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong. While other people, it's just sort of a little bit more, you know, fluid, right? This happens in my own marriage, mind you, 
right? So one of the great debates that happens in the Meyer household is when is it morally wrong in regards to speeding? So just check out this diagram. So um, if the speed limit that we are driving on is 55, 55, Marie believes that you're good, it is morally acceptable up to five miles an hour over. I have a little bit more wiggle room in that area. And so quick show of hands, who's Team Marie? And raise your hand if you're Team Kyle. Praise you, all of you. Bless you, children. Yes. Marie's watching from home today, and so, sweetheart, you can't see this, uh, the crowd, but it was a wave of hands all uh, in my direction. So we're not going to do that today, though. We're not going to do that today. Today, we're not going to set out to try to define morality. In fact, uh, we're actually, this is actually a topic we're going to address in our next sermon series. So post-Easter, we're going to tackle conversations on what's right and wrong, and we're going to tackle a lot of the Christian rules that have been ascribed to you and told you have to follow to be a good Christian, a good follower of Jesus, we're going to revisit some of those. So stay tuned. We're going to tackle that after Easter. Today, for the purposes, I just wanted, so to get us on the same page, I think while there may be disagreements on morality in our society, I do think that one place we can start is there is such a thing as common sense morality, right? Like there's, there is common sense morality that it's it's not right to lie, cheat, steal, or harm another person. We can all agree at least with that sort of starting place. But what's fascinating is a lot of experts and a lot of uh, scientists are doing these, uh, social scientists are doing these studies on uh, our culture and on humanity right now, and they're finding that while there's probably a perceived common sense morality out there, there is a severe lack in moral leadership in our world today. You've seen it in politics forever. But now you're starting to see it bleed over in other areas, in churches, in schools, even your job. Check this out. USA Today published this uh, a couple, uh, I can't remember, maybe a couple months ago. They found that when they uh, surveyed employees, only 13% believed, without a shadow of a doubt, that if their boss or the leadership of their organization, their corporate company or whatever, was placed in a moral dilemma, that they would act rightly. 13%. We have a small staff uh, here at the peak, and so that's two-thirds of a Julie. Everybody else is like, yeah, nah. That dude's crazy. 13%. And so... I'm just going to make an observation that it seems to me, it seems to me, on this conversation of morality, what is right, what is wrong, when are we doing things that are in alignment with our character and contrary to our character, it seems like we have a little bit of a cultural crisis on our hands. But I'll tell you, this is one of the infinite reasons as to why I love our Christian story. Because when you read this book, when you read about the people in this story, you will find probably the largest collection of imperfect leaders you've ever come across. It actually makes no sense. Like if you're writing a book on morality and right and wrong, you would, you know, tuck away adulterers, murderers, and all those sorts of folks. And all those people get a front row seat. They're the stories that we're following throughout this entire book. And I actually think that was on purpose. It was because those stories can teach us something. They can reveal something to us. 
for starters, one of the things that you will find in the stories uh, and all these biblical characters is a reminder. They teach us that just because sometimes immorality isn't met with earthly consequences doesn't mean there aren't spiritual consequences. That's one of the unique witnesses of this story, of our faith. Our faith is here to remind you that uh, sometimes it'll be tempting. You'll go out and do things. You'll do a little bit of lying, just a little bit of cheating, just a little bit of dishonesty. And it'll be tempting in that moment to say, well, nobody saw it, so I'm good. Like, there wasn't any consequences. So, like, what's the point? Like, why should I even worry about being a good person? And these stories come along and they teach you just because there might not have been earthly consequences, you might have been rewarded for your immorality. But you're wreaking havoc on your spiritual health. Just take the example of lying, right? If you make a practice of lying, if you become sort of so, sort of it becomes your regular practice to be dishonest with your spouse and with your children and with your boss and with your friends, what happens is you uh, eventually uh, fall into sociopathy. So you begin to lose track of actually what's true, what's right, what's wrong, what's actually when you told a lie, when you didn't tell a lie. Uh, it becomes sort of this sort of really, really ambiguous, confusing world. And what can happen is that can result to a sort of spiritual deafness. That if you lose track of what is actually true, because you spend so much time lying and mixing up and diluting the truth, you will fail to hear the capital T truth when he tries to get your attention. And so the biblical authors, the biblical uh, imperfect heroes are meant to remind us that on this topic of immoral actions, just because some of the things that we do don't have earthly consequences, sometimes you even get rewarded for it, doesn't mean there aren't spiritual ones. The other thing uh, that I love about uh, the inclusion of all of these imperfect, uh, immoral leaders at different points, is they also set a very clear expectation for us as to what is actually possible. What's actually possible. I'm a firm believer that not just in spirituality, not just in faith, but in all realms of life, one of the biggest enemies out there is perfectionism. Raise your hand if you're a recovering perfectionist in this room. One of the difficulties of perfectionism is this. Sometimes perfectionists can be uh, sometimes uh, the most, uh, they can be sometimes like really, really lazy or not even engage something because in their mind, they're like, well, if I can't get 100%, like if I can't do it perfectly, I ain't just gonna, I'm just not going to do it. So it's like I can't get 100, so I'm just going to not engage at all. And so one of the things I want to be refreshing to you, to be encouraging to you today is actually, if you, again, if you actually read these stories and you actually read about the biblical heroes in our faith, they were only faithful about 85% of the time. And so 85% is your goal. 85% of the goal. Can I do right? Can I do what God's calling me to do? Can I be the person that I want to be? 85% of the time. Now that's just a guesstimate, right? It's not an exact science. But what it's meant to do, what I think that number is meant to do, is sort of reframe expectations and reframe us away from trying to pursue after a perfect spiritual life, one that was never possible to begin with, and instead start, start searching for what we might call a redeemed spiritual life. Now, Kyle, what's the difference between a perfect spiritual life and a redeemed spiritual life? A perfect spiritual life obsesses about what you did, a redeemed spiritual life 
obsesses about what you're going to do next. You hear the difference? You hear the difference? A perfect spiritual life is you're just always, I can't believe I did that. I can't, why did I do that? Like, what happened? Like, what, what, why did I, why did I say that? In a redeemed spiritual life, you're saying, oh, God, that stinks. That's so freaking embarrassing. But now I got to do this. Got to take responsibility. Got to take ownership. Got to make amends. Got to make it right. One, there is no future. And the other, God can actually transform you into someone who more and more and more chooses right and wrong. And there ain't nobody in the world who knows that better than our story for today, the character and our story for today. So if you want to follow along and you brought your Bibles with you, or if you have your smart devices, or if you're watching this online, you have a Bible nearby, go ahead and return uh, back to Psalm 103, because that's where we're going to be camped out for today. Psalm 103 uh, is one of the psalms uh, written by King David, written by King David. David wrote a bunch of the psalms, and David is one of those characters in the Bible that commits one of those just sort of like objectively immoral actions, like objectively wrong. He, uh, He slept with a married woman and then had her husband murdered. So it's like a two for one combo at Hardy's, right? So he's like, he's like, well, we're going all the way in. So he does them both, right? He does something very, very wrong and then tries to recover from it, tries to recover from it. Doesn't quit on himself, doesn't quit on his faith, but tries to recover from it. And what I love so much about Psalm 103 is Psalm 103 actually doesn't happen in the immediate aftermath of his uh, immorality, his fall. Uh, It actually happens later in life. So most scholars posit it this way. They say that uh, right after this action, if you want to read like a really raw journal entry of where his head was at, where his heart was at, read Psalm 51. Read Psalm 51. That is believed to be David's journal entry right after his fall from grace. Psalm 103, the passage we're studying today, most scholars posit it takes place later. And why that's helpful is because now there's some distance in between uh, his writing and his failure. And with that distance comes wisdom, comes perspective. He begins to see and understand things about God because now, by this point in his life, he's had a lot of failures to sort of process out loud and God's reaction to said failures. And there, in Psalm 103, after this, so he's towards the end of his life, he writes some of the things that are so incredible about what he's encountered in God over and against other people. So, for example, he says this. He says, one of the things uh, that I love so much about God, one of the things that I love so much about my faith is that when I screw up, when I mess up, number one, God isn't angry with me forever. That's really good news. That's really, really good news. How many of us, when we do something wrong or we do something that's not quite in alignment with the person we want to be, one of the things that trips us up or prevents us from talking or praying or even going back to church is this sort of like, yeah, but like God's ticked at me right now. Like we're kind of like, "Mm," like God's a little bit offended by what I did. So like I don't really know if God wants to hear from me right now. So we just don't engage. The other thing that David says that he's learned about his multiple failures and then re-engagement with God is that not only is God not an angry judge, but God also doesn't repay us for our sins. God doesn't keep score. God doesn't go, okay, well, 
you were a jerk for five years, and so, sorry, uh, now you're going to go through five years of joblessness and curses and all these other punishments. God doesn't do things that way. The world might do it that way. The world might do it that way. But David's saying, Jesus has never spoken that way to me. And the reason for which, last thing he says, is because what I have found to be true, again, David, at the end of his life, he's writing this not only for the immediate readers back in his day, but he's writing this for all of us. He's saying, please, for the love of God, remember this. When you mess up, when you screw up, when your life goes off track, please remember this, that when you re-engage God, you're not re-engaging some angry king tyrant who's hell-bent on vengeance. You are engaging a compassionate parent. Like a compassionate parent. That's how the Lord engages us. That's how the Lord approaches us. That God sees his son God sees his daughter coming back to him. And so to put it very, very simply, one of the things that I think David is trying to say to you and say to me and say to all people is he's saying, whenever you mess up, don't be afraid to re-engage this God because God doesn't ask the question of what do they deserve. God asks, what do they need? You hear the difference? Every parent in this room understands. You've had a child that is deserving of just like a, when no one's looking, a little shove, right? It's all right. Safe space. Safe space. But they don't need that. When they're having a tantrum, when they're losing their mind, they don't need that. They need something else. They need connection. They need empathy. They need someone to get down on their level, hold them close, and be a source of healing for them, of hope for them. Friends, that's who God is. That's the way God engages us. God is not playing a math game. That's what the world does. I totally get it. And this is why we think this way. The world plays the game of, okay, you messed up. Now we need to figure out what punishment meets the crime. That's the way the world functions. It's a math equation. It's a math formula. Jesus asks a fundamentally different question when you and I mess up. Jesus says, what, what do they need? How can I reach Kyle right now? He's not listening. He's wandering off. Like, what does he need? What does he need? What can we do to reach him, to save him, to bring him back? Maybe another framework we can consider, um, and this is the framework I actually want to use for the remainder of our time together, is when God engages us, when uh, our faith is meant to do sort of two things. It's meant to sort of be God's way of reaching us both before our mistakes and after our mistakes. And so maybe a good framing is to think of it in terms of medicine. So all of our healthcare professionals, you can take the morning off. I've been watching a lot of Grey's Anatomy, and so I feel like I've got a good handle on this. Um, but there's, in, in, in healthcare, uh, every healthcare professional knows this, that there's two different types of care. There's preventative care and there's curative care. There's preventative care and curative care. So preventative care happens before the onset of the disease, before the onset happens. You do things, you take measures to help make sure the thing that you're scared of doesn't happen. Now, that doesn't work all the time, so you have to also have curative treatment, which is how do we, now that there's been an onset of the disease, how do we rid it from this person's system? And friends... Our faith ought to function the same way. You should show up each and every Sunday. You should engage your faith. You should pray. You should engage your relationship with faith for both reasons. 
to not only recover when you've screwed up and stumbled and gone awry, and also to protect yourself from becoming this very person that you don't ever want to become. It should be both, both and. And so I want to break it down. I want to do it one at a time, one at a time. How, how can our faith serve as a sort of preventative remedy, a preventative treatment? Well, for starters, it should just be said that preventative uh, measures is just a wise way to live in general, right? And like, why do you get your oil changed? That was not a rhetorical question. I actually don't know the answer as to why we get our oil changed. Um, I was told that it's good for our cars and such. So I do it because somehow I believe in the magic of when it happens, uh, bad, other bad stuff doesn't happen. Why do you stretch before you work out so you don't get injured? Why do I take a multivitamin every single morning? Well, for starters, because when you turn 30, uh, you slowly but surely become your parents. And you do the things your parents did. The other day, uh, I caught myself for the very first time uh, speaking in public on speakerphone. My dad does this. So embarrassing. We're in the middle of Walmart. I'd be like, hey, hey, Steve, <laughs> what's going on? I did it in Target the other day, and as I hung up, I was like, <gasps> I also do the thing where I mispronounce uh, my daughter's friend's names so all the time. So she comes up, she goes, Daddy, I got this best friend. Her name is Maisie. I go, oh, Macy? No, Maisie. Macy? M- Maisie. Oh, so it's Macy. <laughs> and I take multivitamins. And Dadgum, and I'm proud of it. So why do we do these things? Why do we do these things? Because by taking proactive measures, we're protecting ourselves from harm. We're protecting ourselves from something much, much worse. And so this is where I want to share probably an unpopular opinion, an unpopular opinion. My opinion is this. My opinion is anyone who has ever committed a great, a medium, or a small act of immorality My opinion is they didn't actually want to do so. Maybe that's someone you know. Maybe immediately you're thinking of like a boss, or you're thinking of your parents, or you're thinking of someone in your life who you really love, and they had this fall, they did something that was contrary to their character in really public space, or maybe it wasn't even public, but it was known to like some small group of people. Or maybe it was you. Maybe this is your story. I don't believe a single one of those people wanted to do that, wanted to be that. I don't think anyone sort of growing up says, I cannot wait to commit money laundering. (laughs) I think what happens is somewhere along the way we just forget. We forget the basic spiritual principle that small moral compromises often lead to big failures. If you begin making a habit of making small compromise, small moral compromise, small moral compromise over and over and over again, and you justify it, well, I had good reason for lying, I had good reason for cheating, I had good reason for not letting anyone know that I, what I was doing. What can happen is it can lead to big failures. But you want to hear the encouraging news? Here's the good news. Here's the encouraging news. The flip side is also true. That small and frequent and disciplined acts of faith will also 
prevent and protect you from immorality. They'll protect you from being the person you don't want to be. Why do you think we talk about worship and prayer and Bible study and serving others so much? It's because when they're done rightly, they're like spiritual multivitamins. I'll break it down for you. Worship. Why we worship every single Sunday, why we hold worship services every single Sunday is because we believe that one of the goals of worship is it's to sort of reorder disordered love. Meaning, when I show up into worship every single Sunday, throughout the week, I've probably loved other things more than I've loved Jesus. I might have loved comfort or my money or my whatever more than Jesus. And when I come to worship, part of why we do this is so it can sort of reorder me and make sure I don't forget my first love. The person who first loved me. Why do we talk about prayer? Because without prayer, I will only rely on myself. I'll rely on my own strength, my own understanding. I'll do whatever the heck I want. I don't care what other people think. Prayer pulls me out of that. It requires me to constantly check my motives, constantly check where I'm headed to make sure it's actually not just a life that benefits only me. Devotions, why we do Bible studies, classes. We encourage you to have a devotional life every day is because it can sort of expand your understanding. Expand your understanding of God, of yourself, of your neighbor, so that you don't act in short-sighted or foolish ways. Why do we encourage acts of service? Why do we have missions and mission projects here at our church? Because sometimes we need to be pulled out of ourselves and stop thinking about only ourselves and start giving a damn about our neighbor again. These things, if you let them, and if you treat them not as like a, a checklist, like, okay, God, like, you love me, right? Because I worshiped and I prayed. And, like, if you treat them as things that are supposed to almost infect you and have their way with you, they will help you not only become the person you want to be, but they will protect you and shield you from becoming the very person you don't. So that's the preventative side. That's the preventative side. Now let's move to the curative. Let's move to the curative. Because some of you are thinking, you're like, Kyle, that's great. That's wonderful. That's awesome. But, and I wish I would have had those. I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have practiced that. But I didn't. Uh, and so what am I supposed to do in the aftermath of my destruction? What am I supposed to do when I've already made a mess of things? What am I supposed to do when I've already acted exactly the way I don't, I've become the person I don't want to be, I've done things that I don't want to do? What then? Is there any hope then? And the answer to that is yes. Absolutely. And we go back to our scripture passage for today, and we find those. We find those. Back to Psalm 103, David says this. David says uh, when he finally had enough guts, when he finally mustered enough courage to come back to God, come back to Jesus after his you know, two-for-one combo deal we talked about earlier, after he did that, he found two things, two things that restored his life and restored his faith. The first thing he found was forgiveness. That's the first thing he desperately needed and he found. He says this, as far, I know this now, that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has taken away my sins. That God doesn't keep my record of wrongs. God is not over there obsessing about all the wrong things that I did. But additionally, go back several verses to verses 3 through 5. He says, in addition to forgiveness, I have also found rehabilitation. I found transformation. I found redemption. What does he say? How God, for God not only forgives all of our sins, but God heals us of our sickness, saves our lives from the pit, 
crowns us with faithful love and compassion and satisfies us with plenty of good things. God did both. And so, friends, I want want you to hear something really, really clearly. Really, really clearly. The first is, you and I need both. You need both. Sometimes in the church, we uh, we don't do that. We say, well, if you just made a mistake, you can just ask for God's forgiveness, and forgiveness is all you need. And that's true. You do need forgiveness. We do need grace for our mistakes. I'm not doubting that. But oftentimes, forgiveness is just the first step in rehabilitating your life and getting back on track with becoming the person that you want to be. Because there's a difference. There's a difference between these two. Forgiveness is much, much simpler. Forgiveness is the gospel truth every single person in this room already knows. Forgiveness is both instantaneous and it's free. It's instantaneous and it's free. God is so fast to forgive us of our mistakes. God takes no pleasure in keeping record of like, okay, so let's go to diagram seven, and so these are all the uh, wrongs. God doesn't do that. God has no interest in playing the, the sort of keeping wrong game. God is fast, and it's free. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to achieve it. You don't have to perform yours for it. It's there immediately. However, God's rehabilitation of your life, the spiritual rehab sometimes we have to undergo, that is not instantaneous and free. Oftentimes it is slow, and it is costly. It might cost you people you currently hang out with. It might cost you current habits. It might cost you how you spend your time. And it's all because of the basic truth that every single person in this room already knows. Friends, where you spend your time is where you'll see change. And this is where it always gets tripped up because some people are always like, you know, I hear you. It's slow and it's uh, costly, but like, like how slow? Because I got uh, plans this summer, and I'd really like to like kick the vice before then. Um, when I'm, you know, love to kick the lust problem before beach season, or you know, something like that. So like, how do we, how do I recover from that? And how do I do it fast? And so my answer to that always is something like this. It's like, well, if you're asking the question of how long is spiritual rehab going to take? in the particular areas of our lives where we are weakest. And every single person who's listening to this, every single person who's tuning into this, you've got a particular area of your life where you are just spiritually, you're not as strong. It's a place where you've got to really struggle and really wrestle and really commit to it. And my first answer to that always, when people say, how long is it going to take for me to finally see some, see some gains or see some growth or see some change? And my question back to them is always, well, how long has this behavior been allowed to hang around? If you've been lying for 15 years, it might take more than 15 minutes to stop doing that. I mean, the, our friends at AA, this is what they say about addiction. They say, like, it, it's, you're going to be doing, you're going to be in recovery for the rest of your life. I, I feel like that is such a, such a comparable analogy to the life and my relationship with sin. I feel like I will be recovering from sin for the rest of my life. But I believe where I invest my time is where I'll see the results. 
where sin, where my rebellion might have been really, had a really strong hold on me when I'm in my teens, I believe and I've seen enough growth to know that once I get towards the end of my life, it won't have nearly as the power as it had over me then. But I'm going to have to invest the time. I'm going to have to invest the time and I'm going to have to, please, for the love of God, hear this. I'm going to have to not fall into the trap of overestimating what I can do in the short term and thus, as a result, underestimate what God can do in the long term. It's kind of flipped, so I'll read it again. Be careful that we don't overestimate what we can do in the short term and by doing so, underestimate what God can do in the long term. I'll close here. Close here. As we leave here today, uh, I want to leave you with uh, three pieces of news. Three pieces of news on this whole conversation on immoral actions or moral failures or any time we fall, uh, wander from being the people uh, that we really, really, truly want to be and that God wants us to be. I got three pieces of news for you before we leave here today. Uh, There's uh, bad news, there's good news, and there's the best news. Okay, as always, we'll do bad news first. Okay, ready? The bad news is this. In the aftermath of your failure, in the aftermath of your moral compromise, there will be some people who will never, ever give you a second chance. There will be some people for whom the wound was too deep, the betrayal was too large, and so you will never not be the person who did that to them. And that just sucks. I hope the list of people in my story is not long, but I know for a fact there are people who, because of my immaturity or because of my foolishness or because of my impulsivity, I did things that now they only see me in that light. That thing I said, that thing I did, and I will just always be forever in their minds that guy. And that sucks. It really does. But here's what I've come to find out. Here's what I've come to observe. Oftentimes when people treat me or they treat one another in that way, oftentimes why they're doing that is to protect themselves. They're doing it to protect themselves. They're treating you as that person, as this permanent person that only is that, only dishonest, only a cheater, only a betrayer, and they're doing that so that they never have to suffer that pain again. So long as you're always that person, they can keep you at arm's length, and they never have to run that risk again. And friends, I need you to hear something. That's not yours to fix. In fact, you can't fix that. In fact, the best thing you could actually do is give them the space to heal. And you the same. You the same. The bad news is that uh, some people will uh, never, ever, they'll never accept that you're a work in progress. They'll never allow you to be in process. You, they will never give you a second chance. But here's the good news. They aren't your judge.
They will not be your judge. They will not be the person that you have to answer to in the life to come, which leads to the best news. The person you have to stand before in the life to come is the most merciful and compassionate and empathetic person you've ever met. You know someone? Do you think of someone? Do you know someone in your life who is really compassionate, really merciful? Where'd they get that from? The source of compassion. That's your judge. And that is the only, hear me, hear me. That is the only person who gets to define who you are. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.